the passage that we're going to consider this morning. This is James chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, the, the entire text is printed there, so you should be able to follow what we're doing. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Again, if you're visiting, uh, a big welcome, and we're very glad you're here. And what we like to do during this time of our worship is uh, to preach through books of the Bible as we're able to. Once in a while, we'll, we'll deviate from that. But this fall, we're going through a book of the New Testament. This is James. It's, it appears later in the New Testament, but it may be one of the oldest books written. James is the brother of Jesus. This is a man who grew up in Jesus' home, was not a believer, apparently till late in the game, uh, probably after the resurrection. But we're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We, uh, Downtown Press moved into this facility and started worship here June 1st of uh, 2008. It took, about, it took the better part of a year to renovate it, and uh, some of that we did, and some of that was done by outside help, but it was an exciting day when we got to be in here, and uh, even this morning, hearing the room full of singing is great. That's what we were hoping it would be like. Um, about a week or two before we got here for our first worship service on June 1st of 08, I sent out a letter of um, some guidelines about what to do when we start in our new facility if, uh, if someone walks in who is uh, homeless. Um, sometimes we get a lot of foot traffic past here. Sometimes people come in with solicitations. We were blocked from the rescue mission, which is something we were very glad for. Uh, and every once in a while, somebody will walk in. It hasn't been nearly the level that we thought it would be. But the instructions were partly, how should you respond to someone who comes in, who looks different, who is, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, just looks like a have-not uh, maybe who smells, maybe who makes you uncomfortable. How should you respond? This text is explicitly about that. It is explicitly about that very thing. And as we read it, let me just say this. The way we, re- we respond to that person speaks volumes about what we actually believe. Not necessarily what we publicly claim or profess, but really deep down, what is precious, what do we really believe? That comes out in those scenarios. James 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a piece in the New York Times, and uh, the title of this column was, All Cultures Are Not Equal. Now, that's such a jarring thing to say in our cultural moment that 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 caught my eye. And uh, here's what the the writer said. He says, Not long ago, people said that globalization and the revolution in communications technology would bring us all together. And if you think about commercials about, you know, way back about the Internet or computers and, and, you know, kind of this burgeoning computer technology and cell phones, that was how they built it. This will bring us all together. But the opposite is true. People are taking advantage of freedom and technology to create new groups and cultural zones. Old national identities and behavior patterns are proving surprisingly durable. People are moving into self-segregating communities with people like themselves and building invisible and sometimes visible barriers to keep strangers out. He goes on to say this, 40 million Americans move every year. That's incredible. And they generally move in with people like themselves. So as one writer used to say, every place becomes more like itself. Crunchy places like Boulder, Colorado, attract crunchy types and become crunchier. Do you know what, you know what he means by crunchy? This is the, you drive a hybrid and there's a kayak on, t- on top and you're driving to the you know, locally grown organic food place and... You know, it's crunchy getting crunchier because of the influx of crunchy people. Uh, Conservative places like suburban Georgia attract conservatives and become more so. Now, I thought that's an interesting thing to put your finger on is that the the PR of this burgeoning technology is it's going to cross over these differences and these boundaries. There's going to be more communication and we're going to be exposed to more things. And actually, in our hands it becomes a tool of sort of greater uh, segmentation. Now, what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is that you sort of establish that these are the things that I like, and these are my preferences, uh, these are my beliefs. But you know what? Usually even the beliefs are not so much theological beliefs. It may really be that the strongly held beliefs are about the preferences. 
And so I like this kind of music, and I like these kind of politics, and I like this kind of home decor, and I like this kind of humor. And so I gravitate toward those who share those preferences. There's kind of a bundle. You know, Boulder's got a bundle, and Suburban Georgia's got a bundle, and I've got my bundle. And I'm attracted to people who share that, that bundle. And honestly, I'm not that drawn to people who don't like most or all of that bundle. Now, what I've just described is how most of us do life. And we really wouldn't call that, usually, left to ourselves, uh, we wouldn't call it sin. And James says that is sin. It is not sin to have a preference. It's not sin to like that kind of music more than that one, uh, to like that kind of home more than that one. Well, if, if your preference is a 20,000-foot home, it, that you might have crossed the line on that one. But, but generally speaking, for most homes, to like that kind rather than like th- that kind. No, I, it's, not sin, it's not sin to have a preference. But it's when you cannot give a real welcome and a real embrace to the person who doesn't share most or all of that bundle. That is the very thing that James goes after in this passage. He calls it partiality. Partiality. So here's what I want to look at. Um, first, what's a breakdown of partiality? And when I say breakdown, I don't mean as in disintegration. I mean analysis, overview. A breakdown of partiality, the folly of partiality, why to some degree it's madness, and the end of partiality, the remedy. All right, first the breakdown. What, what's really going on in the kind of partiality that, that he's describing? Let's, let's just kind of do the who, what, where, when, okay? First off, who is being partial? And at first blush, what you may have heard is the rich are being partial against the poor. And that is not what he said. Who are the parties? Verse 1, my brothers. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Don't be partial. Partial against whom? Verses 2 and 3, if a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. That's partiality. In in other words, the partiality that he's talking about is not the, the partiality of the rich against the poor. This is important. It is the partiality of Christians for the rich, against the poor. He's addressing the brothers, and he never says what their income level is. And I want to say that on the front end to say, if if you don't have great affluence, if you don't have a lot of means, and so on the front end of this text you're feeling, I'm not rich enough for this to be really directed at me, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, it explicitly is for us. Okay, that's the who. What is it? What's the... What's the activity of this partiality? What does it do? Look in, verse, uh, look in verse 4. It says, If you do say to the poor guy, stand over there, sit down at my feet, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? In other words, um, in the New Testament, you've got Paul saying, this is kind of a famous verse, it's Galatians 3.28. He says that, In Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male 
nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. When you make distinctions, you're saying, I like the concept, but that is just not how life works. Believe me, I like the concept. I like the thought of unity and everybody being one. But the way life really works is, yes, there are distinctions. And so I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to be honest and I'm going to make the distinctions. And the rich and the poor are different. And we treat them differently. If they walk into my home, if they walk into worship, if they, whatever, we treat them differently. You're making distinctions. And the distinction that's given to the poor man is what? Verse 6. You dishonor him. Honor to the rich, dishonor to the poor. Now, that's the who and the what. What about the where and the when? And this is the really humbling part. Look up, uh, where are we? In verse 2. It says, if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly. That Greek word for assembly is synagogue. And what, that, what he's talking about is this. Remember, this is one of the oldest Christian books. It may be the oldest book in the New Testament. Some of these old synagogues, as members of the synagogue, were converted. And they saw how Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And that's the kind of synagogue that would get this letter from James. That it became really a local, what we would call a local church. An assembly of God's people. So here's what you've got. You've got distinctions made between the rich and the poor. Who's doing it? Christians are doing it. Where and when are they doing it? In worship. In a gathering like this. Now let me say before we go any further... Um, there's not just one kind of career represented in this room. There's not just one kind of vocational path. There's all kinds. But the nature of the case being that we're located in the downtown, people who live or work or associate with the downtown, um, some have made their way here, and they have a vested interest in this. We, We skirt the edge of the central business district of Greenville. And what that means is this, whether you work in close or maybe if you work further out, it's highly likely that you have a vocation where part of what you need to do is to court the favor of the affluent. That might even be if you are a mom. Yes, it could be true of the working woman, the working man, but it could be true if you are a mom And because of your neighborhood, because of your circle of activity, uh, the mothers that you see the most, the people that you see during the day or that you you help one another out, that they are affluent. Now, is that inherently sinful? No, it's not. But here's what that means. If the way daily life tends to go is that I'm with people who have means, and I certainly would like them to like me. I don't want them to dislike me. So I tend to click with what they like and what they don't like, that means that we are especially prone to be the problem. If your vocation requires the affluent to do business with you, for you to come across well, we are especially prone to doing the thing that this text describes. And we need to be honest about that. That's the breakdown. That's kind of what it is. What's the folly of it? And here's here's the folly. It's it's sort of twofold. It's first off, whom you're favoring 
And second, what you're becoming. When we engage in this kind of partiality, who is it that we're favoring? And secondly, what are we becoming in the process? Who we're favoring is the rich. Why is that a problem? Look at, look at the second part of verse 6. It says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? In other words, is this who you want to hitch your wagon to? Now, I, you know, certainly you could hear that, and if you're thinking, you could say, wait, but I, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are people who are middle income who blaspheme God's name. There are people who are low income who blaspheme God's name. Why does he single out the rich as being especially guilty of that? But think about it. The poor do not have a platform to really go public with their unbelief or their blasphemy. In other words, a man who's impoverished, who lives in a mill village in Greenville, and he, he is bitter and he hates God and he's verbal about the fact that he hates God. Yes, he can be that way, but it's not going to send ripple effects through Greenville. But when you have someone with means, uh, someone with employees, someone with staff, someone who can be a real patron in the city, someone with sway, then if they disbelieve, if they dishonor, if they blaspheme, it has punch because they've got influence. Uh, They have the bully pulpit. Think about it another way. Are most churches that, that, um, that experience splits or go in a bad direction, do those typically come from the lowest income members of the church or the highest? I think you know the answer. James is asking us, you're going to favor the attractive when that's their track record? This is who you're going to hit your wagon to. Bend over backwards to please them and marginalize the person who's in the income bracket where God is demonstrating very clearly that He's at work around the world. And that thing comes up multiple times in the New Testament, that the poor, the marginalized, are the ones who are responding to the gospel. And the ones with the most do so least. They respond the least. Okay, so that's the folly of whom you're favoring, but what are you becoming? When, when, you, when, you put on, when you put on the judge's cloak, what are you becoming? Look in verse 4. It says, have you, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And look down at verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, why is that? Verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. That is, theologically, a very important verse. Very important. Because here's what James just said. If we had lived a flawless life, and there was one breach of the law of God, that is tantamount to breaking the whole thing. That verse is supposed to take any hopes we have of earning our way to God and just to dash it on the rocks. So why, why is James bringing that up? Here's what he's saying. When you, when you have your bundle that's important to you and you tend to, you know, birds of a feather flock together, you associate with people who like 
a pretty similar bundle as you, and you then box other people out, what you're doing is you're wielding a standard. You're saying, you may never verbalize it, but we're, we're saying, here's what's important. People that get it like this, people that enjoy company with us like this, they don't. And I don't think that I can ever really be close to them. And James is saying this, all right, if you want to take a standard and wield it, that is insanity. Why is it insanity? Um, think about the scene in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol when the ghost of Christmas present is taking Scrooge to these different spots around London. And in the final few scenes, he just shows him some incredible poverty in London. And Scrooge is trying to understand it and just kind of trying to save face. And finally, the ghost of Christmas present says, Look here, man. And he opens his robes. And huddled around his legs are these two emaciated... The way Dickens describes them is, is horrible. They're horrific. He says they, they look like wolves. They look demonic. He says that Scrooge wants to kind of do the nice thing and say, Oh, what nice children. And, he, and they're so horrible, he cannot bring himself to lie. And the ghost of Christmas present says, Do you see these children? This boy and this girl, their names are ignorance and want. Beware of both of them, and especially of the boy, because on his forehead is written the name Doom. And Scrooge says, do they have no resources or refuge? And that's when the ghost looks at him and says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And you know why that's so damning? He's quoting what Scrooge had said earlier that Christmas Eve when he was out in London and two men solicited him for financial help for the poor and he asked them, well, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And the standard is turned on him to convict him. I've mentioned this almost every sermon. I'm going to say it again. The book of James is replete with references to the Sermon on the Mount. And here is another doozy. Let me read a quick quote from the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now those words can be familiar, but are we hearing him? Are we hearing James? Are we hearing Jesus? Because here's what they're saying. If we are going, if if in the name of authenticity, you know, and not being fake, and I'm going to keep it real, and I'm not going to be a fake person, if we're going to say, look, I know it'd be great if you loved everybody, but I'm just not going to be that close to people who don't share my priorities. I'm just not going to be that close to people who don't do life the same way I do. James is saying, you are free to say, you're free to say that. But here's what, here's what you'll face. You will stand before the living God and He will look you in the eye and say, with the measure you have used, it will be measured to you. Your own words will be the standard. I cannot share life with those who do not share my priorities. I cannot be close to those who do not love what I love. 
depart from me. That is convicting. And that is explicitly what the Word is saying. It's madness. What do we do about it? A couple of things to remember. Um, We are constantly forgetting our own biography. Here's the biography of God's people, according to Ezekiel. Actually, according to God, through Ezekiel. Speaking about his people, he says, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. That's our biography. And I personally find that very hard to remember or to feel. And then you contrast that with verse 1 of the passage. What does verse 1 of our passage say? My brothers, show no partiality. But what's the landscape? As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is probably the highest, most explicit statement that James makes about Jesus in the letter, that this Jesus that I grew up with and didn't really understand, He is Yahweh. He is the Lord of glory. That when they built the tabernacle and they built the temple and it was dedicated and the glory cloud came into it and it was so intense and amazing and dangerous that the priests ran for their lives... That was Jesus' glory. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said. His glory is that he laid his glory aside. His glory is that he laid his glory aside. That his glory was not shining forever and looking and appearing like God. His glory was that he took his rights to look and be treated like God and put them on the shelf to lay down His life. To lay down His life for people who are partial and snootier than we realize and um, tend to be paupers with our love to lay down His life and to lay it down in a specific way, to lay it down where when He came to people who should have received Him, what happened? He came to his own, and what does John say? And his own did not receive him. The the being who should never experience partiality experienced ultimate partiality. Not only exclusion from the love of man, but finally, at the point on the cross, exclusion from the love and mercy of God. That is ultimate partiality. 
And he did it so that, number one, we would never be excluded by God. But number two, to open up the floodgates of no longer being partial with one another. And if you think I'm overstating that, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But then he he answered a second, and that was not in the question. And the second part of the answer is in the text, and it's what? That you love your neighbor as yourself. The only thing, really, that is so good and so big and so wonderful and so much larger than preferences that people with very different bundles, whether that's home decor or music or whatever, whatever's in there, appearances, pro-tattoo, anti-tattoo, whatever, whatever's in the bundle, people with radically different bundles can gather around it and say, I know I love that. If you love that too, we may need to spend time together. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we do. We smell different. We can still be friends. It's that good. If we get the gospel, there ought to be people that we end up, if not being best friends with, acquaintances with, that only the gospel could bring us together. If we're going to be a local church that is a blessing to this city, there need to be people sitting in the same congregation who may not be able to abide each other's musical taste, may not be able to abide each other's political leanings, but they love Jesus together and want to see Him lifted up. A couple of things to think about before we wrap up. Um, It could be that a source of joy for you and me would be to have a greater sense of our unworthiness. That sounds very counterintuitive. But it may be that the way for us to become more joyful people and more outreaching people is to have a greater sense of our own unworthiness. How can that be? It's because Jesus said, those who have been forgiven little, love little. If you feel yourself to be a good person and a homeless man walks into the lobby, you will not be the person to help. But if God has convinced us that we were wallowing in our own blood and no one was coming to our aid and he walked over when he had no compelling reason to do so and said, live, and didn't just say live, but loved us and welcomed us, you can talk to anybody. And you should. We should. I'm going to end with two quotes. Um, These are from a book that probably a lot of you read called The Same Kind of Different as Me. And uh, this was on the, I think, bestseller list for a while. And uh, long story short, an art dealer, I believe Dallas, is that right? Um, An art dealer, through strange set of circumstances, becomes friends with not only a homeless man, but a frightening homeless man. And they end up actually being friends. Two quotes from each. First from Ron Hall, the art dealer, moves in affluent circles. He said this, To love a man enough to help him, you have to forfeit the warm, self-righteous glow that comes from judging.
but then from Denver, and end with this. Even though I'm almost 70 years old, I've got a lot to learn too. I used to spend a lot of time worrying that I was different from other people, even from other homeless folks. And then after I met Miss Debbie and Mr. Ron, I worried that I was so different from them that we were never going to have no kind of a future. But I found out everybody's different. The same kind of different as me. We're all just regular folks walking down the road God set in front of us. The truth about it is, whether we rich or poor or something in between, this earth ain't no final resting place. So in a way, we is all homeless, just working our way toward home. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we've already confessed our sins, but would you allow us to, together in our hearts, admit something else, and that is that we have been partial to those not like us. We've done it as individuals. We've done it as a church. Have mercy on us. Change us. Cleanse us. Lord Jesus, may your, may your glory be so good that we don't have to fear what the rich or the poor think of us because we have your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen.